Well, good evening, Hallows Church, once again. My name is Bryant, I serve as one of the pastors here. It's my privilege tonight to guide us in our time as we open the scriptures and study them tonight to see what Jesus has to say for us as we gather in this midst, uh, gather in this place tonight. Uh, if you would pray with me as we begin our time studying the word together. God, we ask in these next few moments, you would center our heart's attention upon the scriptures. And by the Holy Spirit, you would illumine uh, truth. You would open our eyes to see the beautiful truth that is in your word. You would bring conviction, you would bring clarity, you would give instruction, and you would guide us not only into deeper realization of the truth, but deeper application of the truth, that as we leave this place, we'll be swimming in these waters for days to come, and that you would transform our life by the power of your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd love to invite you to open your Bible with me to John chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 26 tonight. If you don't have a Bible, we've uh, got some Bibles in the seat back maybe in front of you that are provided there. And also, if you don't own a Bible, we've got a stack on the table uh, in the welcome area in the uh, entryway. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of the Scriptures uh, as you leave tonight. So please uh, pick one up on the way out if you don't have one already. So we look at the Scripture tonight in John chapter 12, beginning at verse 24. Jesus says these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we dive into this passage tonight. I really want to examine what it means to serve and follow Jesus. What it means to serve and follow Jesus. Uh, as, for as long as I can remember, I've always been a planner. Uh, I think back particularly to my years in high school and when I saw one of the most impactful statements uh, that has kind of affected this area of thinking about the future and planning for the future of my life. Uh, in our school, we had two primary uh, stairwells that were kind of designated as one-way directional stairwells to kind of corral the foot traffic of all the students in between changing classes. And so what, what seemed like months to me it's probably only about six or eight weeks or so, but what seemed like months as I would be on my way to class upstairs as I was uh, stepping onto the, the top of the steps, I would see this bulletin board that the teachers had put up with this statement on it. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Anybody ever seen that statement, read that statement, heard that statement? I don't know if it's been as impactful to you as it has been to me, but as I saw that day after day, had, had enough time to like sink in, and my thought pattern was like, Nobody really like plans to fail, right? Of course not. But how often in our life and how many different areas do we actually fail to plan, which results in some type of failure anyway, right? So around that time, I step into the guidance counselor's office so that I can begin to plan my life because I don't plan to fail. 
pull out the career book, and uh, I've always been interested in the sciences and biology and all that stuff. Not great at all at math, uh, which was why music, music is like great because you like count to four and you start over. Uh, but anywho, I step into the office and I pull the career book down and I start going through the medical careers. And I found out that surgeons are among the most well-paid in the medical field, and particularly a cardiovascular surgeon and a neurosurgeon. Uh, at that point in time, after they finished school and residency and everything, they were coming out of uh, all of that and landing uh, about $250,000 a year. And I thought, bingo, that's what I want. And why do I have to choose between the two? Why can't I be a cardiovascular neurosurgeon, a heart and brain doctor. To that effect, now I might not come out of residency and school and all that, landing at 500K a year, but something to the tune of at least like 350, $400,000 a year, and the plan kicks in. So, you know, once I'm making this money, I'd buy some land. I used to live in Alabama. That's a lot more accessible than like buying land in Seattle. Uh, but I'd buy some land. I'd build a house on that land. As a teenager, uh, sometimes in the, in the grocery store checkout lines, you know they'll have all these magazines. Well, one of the magazines that I, I bought often was a magazine filled with house plans. And so as a teenager, I had the plan for the house I wanted to build on the land that I was going to buy with this car cardiovascular neurosurgeon career that I was going to enter into. At some point, I was going to start a family, get married, have some kids. And at the point that I'd like reach my goal in my career, which is to be grossing like over a million dollars a year, I'd like step back from working so hard in the operating room. I'd take a job on the teaching faculty at the medical school, and I'd invest in the next generation of doctors, and I'd live out the rest of my days dying an old, accomplished cardiovascular neurosurgeon at the ripe old age of 100. That was my plan. Good plan, right? So I was, I was clinging to that plan. I was like beginning to stake my identity on that plan. But as I journeyed through the years of high school, I was also beginning to learn what it meant to follow Jesus. And by his grace, God had put people in my life around me who he had given a, a, what I'd kind of describe a prophetic glimpse or a glimmer of what he was doing in my heart and what he wanted from my life in the days ahead. One of those people particularly was uh, an elderly neighbor. I used to live on St. Charles Avenue. I don't know that anybody in the neighborhood actually knew this neighbor's name, but since we lived on St. Charles, we called him Mr. Charles. And so as I was walking to school with my neighbor one morning, Mr. Charles just kind of walked out and like looked at me, no like good morning, no anything. He just said, God's got a call in your life. God's going to call you to preach. And from that day forward, Mr. Charles called me preacher boy. Now, I was a little bit annoyed by that because I was in denial as to what God was doing in my life. I had my plan, right? I've got this plan worked out until the day I die at 100 years old. And he's calling me preacher boy, and I'm a little annoyed, but if he can only see me like right now in this moment, right? As I began to kind of grow in my discipleship and following Jesus, shortly after I graduated high school, I began to sense the reality of what God had been speaking into my life over the course of several years from different people, namely like people like Mr. Charles, I began to sense this call to serve Jesus vocationally with my life. And man, it shook me. It shook me because I had staked so much in the plan for my life that I had constructed. And as I began to, to fall more in love with Jesus, 
it began to be easier and easier to kind of let go of that plan. I say it began to be easier because I, I first set out to try to negotiate with Jesus. I don't know if you've ever tried to do this, but after he's kind of uh, putting these people in my life, telling me I'm going to head in this direction, I said, okay, Jesus, I don't know how this is going to work, me being uh, a surgeon and a preacher, a pastor, uh, because what if I get paid to like emergency surgery while I'm in the middle of giving a sermon? So like, I, I can't just drop what I'm doing there, right? So this is how it's going to go. We're going to like play Christian music, play gospel music in the operating room. We're going to like pray with the patients and their families. We're going to share the gospel with them. And that's, that's how it's going to be done, Jesus. It's like, no. But in his kindness and his mercy and his patience, he continued to grow me, grow me in my, effect, my affection and my love and, I'm, and my devotion to him. And as I began to sense that for the first time in my life, right after graduating high school, only 18 years old, I pressed into a year's time of really praying searching the scriptures, pressing into the relationships that I had around me from my home church and those who have been pouring into my life, asking people if they, if they were seeing these things in me, seeking an affirmation of what I was sensing from the Lord. And after about a year's time, I stood before my, my faith family much like this and just kind of gave a brief description of what God had been doing in my life and surrendered to this, this call to ministry. In essence, on that day, some 18 years ago, I stood before my faith family and publicly began the process of dying to this dream, this plan, this, this, this goal I had constructed for my life. Now, I have nowhere the potential to make half a million dollars, $250,000, let alone a million dollars a year in my lifetime. But I'm going to tell you that I could not have put together a better life for myself with my own two hands than the life I've had the privilege to live because at a moment in time, I realized this is a dream worth dying for to pursue the dream that God has for me. It makes me think about Luke chapter 9, verse 23, when Jesus says to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, the New Living Translation says, you must lay aside, set aside your own selfish ambition, take up your cross daily and follow me. This is the process that I began. It's a process that we all began at some point in time when we stepped into relationship with Jesus, and it's the call that Jesus places on our life each and every day. Examining our heart, looking at our life, what are these things that, that we can identify as, as our own selfish ambition that would get in the way of pursuing and following and serving Jesus? And those are the things that he calls us to lay aside, to literally begin the process of dying to on a daily basis. So let's look to the text that we're studying, where when it comes to understanding what it means to following and serving Jesus, I think we find three kingdom principles in this passage. The first of which I think is this, through the gospel, true life always flows from death. In verse 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth or is buried and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, this is one of those quick and and simple parables or sayings of Jesus, because as you know, he doesn't like really waste words. He like really gets to the heart of the matter of examining and asking the question of us, what is it do I want? What is it that you want? What is it that we want? Well, we want life, right? We want a, a full, enjoyable, abundant life. But oftentimes what we find ourselves, much like I began the process as a young person, as a teenager, we, we construct this semblance of life that we think will lead to fulfillment 
Is that what we want or do we really want the true joy and life that comes only through a relationship following and serving Jesus? We'd say in our head and our, hopefully in our heart that we want option B, but oftentimes by the way we live our lives, we're pursuing option A. You see, in my story, the life I had planned for myself was with God on the periphery. And this is, I believe, the very thing that Jesus is getting at when he says, unless, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it will remain alone. I mean, I can only imagine what my life would be like had I not been willing to die to my dream, my plan, my goal, and pursue what Jesus had for me. I'd probably be absolutely miserable. And for some of us, many of us, especially in the city in which we live, they are pursuing dreams and goals and self-constructed life plans, and they're absolutely miserable following after that because only true life and joy can be found in Jesus. This parable of the seed, it's, it's, it's a matter-of-fact statement that only until a seed goes into the earth, only until a seed is buried and gives up the life or the semblance of life that it has, will it be able to bear any fruit. So it's only through dying that life can come. And I think this, this helps us to better understand maybe the picture that's being painted as, as a declaration is being made when we, when we have the privilege of seeing Christian baptism. Think about this. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says these words. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Because if you're dead to it, you're not alive to it, right? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order or so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we identify with Jesus through baptism, we are going public with our faith. We're telling the world that I am a follower of Jesus. And in doing so, we are declaring that we are like a seed that has gone into the earth, been buried in the ground, and it's by dying to to our old way of life, our dreams, our ambitions, our goals oftentimes, that the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead begins to give new life to our, as the scripture says, our mortal bodies, making it possible, making it possible because apart from this, it's not, but he makes it it possible for us to begin to bear much fruit that gives God glory? That's the life we want. But when talking about the seed, the true mystery I believe Jesus is getting at in this passage in John chapter 12 is that he's referring to his own impending death, burial, and resurrection. He's been talking about it with his disciples all along. If we were to back up and read through John chapter 11 and 12, we'd, we'd see how the stage has been set for Jesus to be able to say in this passage, the hour has come, which means now is the time. Well, what is it time for, Jesus? It's time for me to do what I ultimately came to do, which is be submissive to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. You see, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He says that in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, but that wasn't fully accomplished through his life, through his living only. It ultimately is accomplished through Jesus dying and being raised again on the third day from the grave. Him becoming, as Paul says it, the first fruit of those who would follow after him. Again, he's a seed that goes into the ground. He's now bearing much fruit. And the fruit that he's bearing is evident right here in this room tonight. 
As we are all leaning in, many of us leaning in, trusting in the, in the gospel, serving the Savior, leveraging our lives in such a way that we're trying to, to bring much glory to him as we lead others into relationship with him, that they too might bear much fruit. Jesus knows that his death is not the end. He's already declared his death and his resurrection in John 10, saying this, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord, and I have authority to take it up again. You see, this is, this is a gospel teaching moment for his followers, both then, these who are hearing him say these words, and us today. We can confidently leverage and even lay down our lives in service to the Savior because he has defeated our most ultimate foe, death. He knows that he has to die in order to truly fulfill all that God the Father has sent him to do, but he also knows that death is not the end. John chapter 3, verse 16, that's probably a very familiar uh, verse in our, in our scripture vocabulary, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. But there is good news that follows that verse in verse 17 when it goes on to say, That God did not send his son into the world to bring condemnation or to condemn the world, but God sent his son into the world in order that the world might be saved through him. And how does this happen? By giving his life as a ransom for many. So in this little parable, when Jesus talks about the seed that falls into the earth and dies so that it might bear much fruit, he he is talking about himself. And he's talking about all those who would come after him and trust in his name that we become those seeds that are buried in the ground and God miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit begins to bring forth God glorifying kingdom advancing fruit. And he is still bearing that fruit to this very day. So let me pose this question. What is the point of our lives if we're only living for ourselves? How are we unlike a seed that is buried but never produces anything? It's the whole purpose of the seed, to go into the ground and to let go what semblance of life that it has so that new life can come forth. And Jesus says that a seed that is unwilling to die will remain alone. You see, the true life that flows from death through the gospel is the reality that we are not only saved or rescued from the penalty of our sin, but we are also saved and rescued to a new family. So as we begin to to pursue a life of serving and following Jesus, we've we've got an untold numbers of brothers and sisters. And here you can count them because we're in this local faith family together. But you've got an untold number of brothers and sisters who are now rallying around you and championing the cause of God's kingdom in your life, both in and through your life. For his glory and for the sake of people that we live around. Jesus says this to assure us of this reality in Mark chapter 10, verse 29. There is no one, no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. It's the promise that Jesus gives. The reality of Maybe many of you, many in our city and definitely in other parts of the world is that when, when one chooses to begin to trust and follow Jesus, they're saying yes to him 
And they might be excommunicated, thrown out of their family, thrown out of their community. Maybe some of you began to follow Jesus and friends uh, begin to turn their back on you. Like, I, I, I'm not down with Jesus. I'm not down with that life. I'm not down with that whole church thing. You begin to, to seemingly lose. But the reality that, that we began to live in is that even though these relationships fell away or I lost them seemingly, I began to step into new relationships. I began to step into a new family. God's promise is true from the very first word until the very last day. It's through death that we're truly able to begin experiencing life. So death is no longer the enemy because through the gospel, it becomes the means, becomes the means through which life comes. It sheds light on what the famous missionary martyr Jim Elliott wrote, that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose which leads us to what I believe is the second kingdom principle from this passage, which is through the gospel we actually gain by losing. Through the gospel we actually gain by losing. Check out verse 25 where Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know, I think self-preservation is one of the strongest instincts of any living creature on the planet. We will fight in order to stay alive. But Jesus calls us to a different kind of self-preservation. Calls us to the kind of preservation that will, will save our eternal soul. He says whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Which means we're willing to let it go. We're willing to, to turn our backs on it, so to speak. And we don't like making such stark contrasts in our, with our choices or our decisions, right? We don't like saying that we are loving what we choose and we are hating what we don't choose. But I think this is exactly what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, when he talks about how we can't serve two masters. Either you will love one master and hate the other, or you will be devoted to one master and despise the other. So thinking about what Jesus says there and, and seeing what he says in, in our text in John 12, let's superimpose the last part of Matthew 6, 24 over verse 25 and read it this way. Whoever is devoted to his life will lose it. And whoever despises his life in this world will actually keep it for eternal life. Again, for the disciple of Jesus, through the gospel, we actually gain by losing. Jesus calls us to a level of devotion in following him that is so deep, so passionate, so intense, that in loving him and following him, it can begin to look to other people like we don't care about ourselves, we don't care about our own life, because so much of our priority is him. He instructs us to not be concerned about the things of this life, but instead we should be consumed with concern for God's kingdom, realizing that everything that we have need of, God's going to take care of that. He's going to add that to our lives. Think about what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been nailed to the cross. Nevertheless, I live, yet it's not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. And this life that I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. Paul is saying in order to, to serve and follow Jesus, I've got to be nailed to the cross. 
If you've been in the church any amount of time, you've probably seen pictures or, or, or uh, icons of, of the crucified Jesus. And if you know anything about crucifixion, it's one of the most cruel forms of execution that, that mankind has ever come up with. I won't go into a lot of detail of describing it, but basically when you're nailed to the cross, you can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. And Paul says, in order for me to live a life that makes much of Jesus and serve him fully and faithfully, I have to be nailed to the cross. I can't move. I can't get down. But yet you, you see me living and walking, my li- walking and living my life on a daily basis, right? But that's not me. I'm nailed to the cross. That's Christ living in me. Well, how does that happen? What, how does that take place? How does Christ live in you? Well, it's I, I begin to live by faith in him. He's the one. He's the son of God who loved me so much that he was nailed to a cross, that he gave everything up for me. But praise God, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose on the third day, which is how he's able to live in us and make much of himself, make much of his kingdom and transform lives through us. According to Romans 6, Paul says that we've got to consider ourselves dead to sin in order to be alive to God. When I think about that verse, I think about uh, being in ministry for several years and even my own personal experience uh, of death in my family. I lost my dad about nine years ago. Uh, but I remember uh, coming to uh, before the casket at the funeral home for the very first time and, and looking at his body. And my dad didn't respond to me. He didn't, he didn't move. He didn't say anything. He didn't talk. Why? Because at that point, he was dead. It was a corpse. And in order for us to effectively live lives that make much of Jesus and advance his kingdom in the world, we've got to consider ourselves as dead, as a corpse to sin. So that when the enemy comes with temptation, the, the Bible tells us in 1 John that we've got three enemies. We've got the world, we've got the devil, and we've got our flesh. When all these things begin to come against us, calling us in opposite direction of where Jesus is calling us, we consider ourselves dead to it. We don't respond to it. And in doing so, life, true life for the glory of God can come from that. We're pointed to Christ's example in Philippians chapter 2. We studied this passage a couple of weeks back as we were journeying through Philippians. Paul is saying that just like Jesus was willing to give up everything to honor and please the Father, we too must be willing to give it all up in order to honor Jesus. We see the beauty of what Christ did in this passage where it says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being born just like we were born. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, this tells us that Jesus wanted to serve the purposes of the Father more than he wanted to remain in heaven. So he was willing to to empty himself, to be poured out. He willingly gave up all he had, all he was experiencing to pursue all the Father wanted. And it was to the glory of God the Father, the passage goes on to say, and it was for our benefit. And that's how Jesus calls us to follow him. It's why Paul could say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything, everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul had a lot. He had a lot staked on his reputation. He had been invested in a lot. He was, he was the best of the best in everything and everywhere that he came from. 
But he counted all of that. The original language literally calls it dung. He calls it rubbish. He considered it as trash compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Paul was more than okay with losing everything he had previously valued and staked his identity on because he knew that through the gospel, he was getting a way better deal. The life that Jesus calls us to live is so, it's so counterintuitive to the way the world, uh, to that, uh, the way of the world, that love for Jesus can be perceived as self-hatred. But in reality, what we're losing, it pales in comparison to what we have to gain. Which I think brings us to our third kingdom principle from this passage tonight, looking at our last verse 26, that through the gospel, through the gospel, the life of death and loss, it's the path to glory and honor. It's not a dead end. It's actually a path to glory and honor. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I think the clearest way to know who you love is to ask yourself who you enjoy spending the most time with. Who is it that you look forward to being with? That might be a romantic interest, girlfriend, boyfriend, could be uh, your best buddy, uh, ladies, girlfriends, um, could be a parent, could be a sibling. Uh, whoever that person is, it's safe to say if you look forward to hanging out with them, spending time with them, you really, really love them. But that's why so many of us long for heaven. That's why we want to see Jesus return. That's why we want to see his, his reign and rule in the lives and hearts of people around us. Because where that's taking place, that's where Jesus is. And we want to be where Jesus is. Because he's truly the beloved of our soul. This verse in this passage particularly, God has really used to grab my attention in the last couple of years. Particularly at a moment in time where I thought, man, I'm going to spend... Uh, the rest of my life in ministry, uh, some, so at, at least five to 10 more years uh, in a place I was serving in Texas. And I really built community, had been investing in relationships, had really spent a lot of time and energy uh, building a music ministry in the life of a church. Man, I was content. What I didn't realize until I was confronted with the truth of this passage and God convicted my heart is that much like I set out in my teenage years to kind of construct this, this plan and vision for my life, I'd actually began to do that around ministry. I began to construct a plan and, 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 and a life goal around God's plan for me. When I, I've, got to, I've got to write my plans in pencil, as Pastor Andrew says, and because God has the right to change them. Man, my pattern in life is to write everything in Sharpie. <laughs> Because <laughs> if in Sharpie, you can't do anything with it. But God is greater than Sharpie. So a couple of years ago, I was actually visiting some friends here in Seattle. Um, had been serving in Texas for a number of years and thought I'd be there for a number more. And uh, as we were studying this passage on a Wednesday night in Bible study, my friend was planning a church, getting, getting things going. Had about 25 people in the room from various backgrounds, uh, spiritual experiences, all these things. And we were looking at this text. And when we got to this verse, uh, a lady in the room asked the question. Um, she said, I, I kind of get what it means when Jesus says this to the people that are hearing him in this passage, when he says, you know, wherever I am there, you, you've got to be. But what does that mean for us today? I thought, man, that's a really good question. So what's my friend going to say? Like, what's anybody got to chime in? And everybody just kind of 
It's kind of steeped in that. And I can't stay quiet too long. Anybody who's ever been in a missional community or in a Bible study situation with me probably knows that. Uh, But I chimed in. What I forgot is that over the the past many years, anytime God has has spoken uh, uh, with clarity, and I I would even say I brought some clarity to some foggy situations in my life, he's done it out of my own mouth. Whether I'm in a discipleship conversation or I'm giving counsel to somebody, like I'm actually saying words, I'm pointing to the scripture, and somewhere in the back of my mind, it's like, oh, I need to write that down because that's actually for me. It just came out of my mouth. And so as I began to chime in, I said something to the effect of, well, I think it still means the same. I think, I think there are clear and distinct ways that we can see Jesus at work in either people's lives or uh, in a situation or in a community, in a neighborhood, in a city, and maybe even in, in other parts of the world. And for us to see that, to, to follow Jesus, to be able to serve him, we've got to, to go to those places. If he's opened our eyes to see where he's at work, then it's our response, our responsibility even, to follow him into that situation because we are the hands and feet of Jesus. And as I'm saying this, I feel like the blood is draining from my face because I realize, oh no, oh no, Jesus, I'm on vacation. I didn't come to Seattle for you to call me to Seattle. Because all week long, I've been walking around the neighborhood I live in now with my friend, and I'm seeing need, and I'm seeing how Jesus is at work, and I'm hearing about what Jesus is doing all over the city of Seattle. I'm like, man, how can we back in Texas like partner with what's going on here? And what Jesus brought me here to do was to open my eyes to see what he was doing, bring me to a place in his word where I had no other choice but either to walk away, to resist essentially to walk in disobedience or begin the process of submitting my life to his word. And I knew in that moment what this means, because I see Jesus at work in Seattle, it means this is where he wants me to be. And began that journey. Well, to follow Jesus means just that. We've got to be following Jesus. Why? Because we are of no service to Jesus if we're not following him. He's the one who says that if we're going to serve him, we must follow him. But even though following him might seem to result in death, it's actually the path to life. It doesn't mean losing, but it's actually gaining. And how do we, how do we know that? Because Jesus promises, he makes this, this little promise at the end of that verse, that the father will honor the one who serves him, which makes the dying and the loss more than worth it. Now, as I've looked at this passage over the last several years, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what it means or what it looks like for the father to honor the one who serves Jesus. I'm sorry, I don't have that answer for you, but I know it's got to be a good thing. If there's anything I want is to have the pleasure, the blessing, the honor that the father will bestow upon my life because I'm serving and I'm following Jesus. So if tonight you're hearing this and man, you're, you're scared to death of the implications of what it might look like to follow Jesus, let all of that be put to rest because Jesus says the father will honor the one who serves him. Think again about Philippians chapter two. Because of what Jesus did, because he was obedient even to the very point of death, death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There's no one anywhere who won't bow the knee to Jesus. And every tongue will confess that, Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
The writer of Hebrews is also showing us Jesus' motivation when he says that Jesus was, was, for the joy set before him, he was able to endure the cross and despise the shame. And as a result, he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God on high. Everything Jesus left heaven and, and experienced and went through, it was all worth it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that there are two paths. He says that one is easy, but the other is hard. He says one is wide, but the other is narrow. He says many people are on one path, but few find the other. One path leads to destruction, while the other leads to life. You see, the way of following Jesus is the way that ultimately leads to where he is. If we're going to serve him, we've got to follow him. And that's ultimately in the Father's presence. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. One of his disciples says, Jesus, we don't know the way. Where are you going? He says, and he even asked him, like, show us the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know the way, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the promise that Jesus gives is that those who are with him, who are serving him, who are following him, the Father will honor them. I heard a pastor once say that love is the distinguishing mark of a disciple of Jesus. Why love? Because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We don't obey out of fear. We don't obey in order to earn some favor with God, but we submit our lives to Jesus because we love him. And Jesus says that your love for one another is the testimony to the world that you are my disciples. So love is the distinguishing, the distinguishing mark of a disciple of Jesus. But if we're going to follow Jesus, then we've got to be doing that. We can't say, I love you, but we're not with them. We've got to be following Jesus. We've got to be where he's, where he's working, joining him in what he's doing, no matter the cost, always knowing that the Father will honor the one who serves Jesus. That means if you see Jesus at work in the life of maybe a colleague or a coworker, it may mean restructuring your day or the rhythms even on your job of being able to step into relationships. You can have conversations with this coworker because you, you see how God's at work in their life. Maybe it's having your eyes open to the way Jesus is working in your neighborhood or among your neighbors and restructuring your life and your rhythms and your patterns so that you can step into relationship with those neighbors and bring the good news of the gospel to them. It may see, be seeing Jesus working in another part of our city. And it may mean uh, ending your lease, may mean selling your house so that you can move to that neighborhood to be a part of what Jesus is doing. It may be like even some of those that God called to be a part of planting the Hallows Church, you see him at work in another city and you sell everything and move away from family and friends and join the work of Jesus where he is. And some of you may be sensing that Jesus is at work in other parts of the world and wondering, man, Jesus, would you send somebody to those people? And I would wonder if he's opened your eyes to the need in that place, if he might be calling you there. Because to see where Jesus is working is an opportunity to step into serving him and following him in that place. I wonder how many of you today are where I was as a high schooler. You've constructed this life plan 
and you're holding tightly to it. You're, you're banking everything of who you are. You're staking your identity on it. Yet, you might be missing the greater purpose that God has for you. Or how many of us may have a sense of what time it is? Jesus says, the hour has come. Now's the time. If we're still living for ourselves or we, if we get it, that it's time to die, to let go of some things, to die to some things in order to be able to bear the fruit that God wants from our time here on earth. That it's time to lose what the world sees as valuable in order to gain what is ultimately most valuable for all eternity. That it's time to stop talking about following Jesus and it's time to actually start following Jesus. You see, through the gospel, the logic of the world, it's, it's turned upside down. The life of death and loss become the path to glory and honor. The question tonight is, do we trust? Do we trust Jesus enough to die and lose in order to, to live and gain all he promises us? Do we believe him enough to follow him, trusting, leaning into, holding on to the promise that the Father will honor the one who serves Jesus? As we come to this passage tonight, I believe Jesus is showing us that this is what it means to serve him and to follow him. Leveraging our life in such a way that we, we get, lay it all down, we give it all up, we die to it all in order to live to his glory. Would you pray with me tonight? Father, thank you so much for your word and for the promise that you give in it, the promise of eternal life for all who will call upon the name of Jesus, the, the promise that you will bring uh, lasting fruit from the one who is willing to die, die to our selfish ambition, die to uh, the sin that, that so easily ties us up, entangles us. And Jesus, you died and rose again that we might be set free and walk in newness of life. Thank you for the truth and the assurances that you give from, from your word. And we ask that you would cause our faith to increase in the places in our heart where, where doubt is, is weighing more heavily than faith in the truth. We ask that you would cause our faith to increase. Help us to press into relationship with you. Help us to trust you, that you are who you said you are, who you say you are, and you will do what you say you will do. And use us, use our lives to advance your kingdom here on this earth, to magnify and multiply the gospel until there's no place left where this good news of the kingdom of God has not been heard. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.